Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. I'm really excited about this show because it goes to the heart of so many of the things that we talk about on Go Green Radio to include sustainable supply chain issues, occupational health, and the way that chemicals um, and manufacturing processes can impact human health and the environment around these processes. And today our guest is highly qualified to guide us through this discussion. We have Dr. Paul Blanc, and he is a professor of medicine and holds the endowed chair in occupational and environmental medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. And he's the author of a book um, that some of you may be familiar with already called How Everyday Products Make People Sick. But today we're going to be talking about his new book, and it's called Fake Silk, The Lethal History of Viscose Rayon. And I'm so excited to have him on the show. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Dr. Blanc. We're so glad to have you. Well, glad to be here. I'd like to begin by asking you to tell us what viscous rayon is and in what products we might find it today. Well, viscous rayon is in fabrics, by and large, and these days mostly as a part of a blend. But viscous produced for other uses is in a variety of other products as well. Give us some idea of, of where a consumer might find them and how they would know if there's this viscose in the products that they're purchasing. I think it's easier with clothing on one level because there are uh, requirements for labeling, but that labeling may still be obscure. I've run into a lot of people who, when I say that rayon is viscose, they say, what? I had no idea because rayon was originally created as a name uh, by the American Dry Goods Association in the 1920s to be a flashy name for what was then a fairly new product and was called in other countries other things, especially artificial silk or art silk. Now, the name rayon came to be associated with a little bit of chintziness and tawdriness, and for that reason... The word viscose, which is the technical term for uh, how it's made when it's made with a certain toxic chemical, uh, is what is used on the labels nowadays. And so people don't even know. So it may say it on the label, but people may not understand it. When it comes to other products, uh, people are not going to necessarily know that it's viscose. I'm thinking now about your regular old household sponge, most of which are, in fact, rayon. And And cellophane as well, right? Cellophane as well. No one's going to have an idea that that's made with a viscose process. And, of course, if you're uh, into skinless uh, weenies, uh, already the rayon product, the viscose product, has been removed by the time it's marketed to you. Wow. Now, your book mentions the current greenwashing of viscose as an eco-friendly product. What aspects of viscose are highlighted when it's being marketed as, quote-unquote, green? Well, one key ingredient in viscose is some source of cellulose, and often that is wood pulp. 
So one way it's promoted as a green product is by saying the trees that gave us the wood pulp for this product were grown uh, uh, as a sustainable forest and has the seal of approval from the Sustainable Forest Association. They never mention any of the rest of it. Uh, I've also seen uh, rayon sponges marketed as green products because, again, they're based in part on cellulose. It's particularly egregious, actually, with uh, bamboo, which is a great source of cellulose and grows quickly. And so the bamboo-based viscose products have even more of a tendency to uh, uh, sell themselves as uh, green-friendly, completely leaving aside the rest of the manufacturing, of course. And that's what I want to talk about now. And I want to demonstrate <laughs> through what your book lays out so, so well, is that viscose is not green. And your book really goes into detail in terms of the manufacturing process. And so I'd really like you to take some time and give our listeners uh, a rudimentary understanding of the manufacturing process associated with viscose. Sure. And it's uh, simple to explain because it's a basically simple process. And it's not a new process. This was introduced at the turn of the last century. It's the first synthetic fiber uh, that humankind ever really produced. What you do is you take a source of cellulose, and the beginning was always wood pulp, and you soak it with a caustic. And after you soak it for a while, and it's ground up, and it's this white-looking stuff, you add to it a very peculiar chemical, which is really at the heart of my book. It's a chemical called carbon disulfide. You add that to the mix, and it makes a kind of a toxic maple syrup that's uh, called xanthate. It's the heart of the viscose process. And then what you do is you add even more caustic to it. It's this kind of runny, syrupy thing, and you force it through... uh, tubes into little nozzles with tiny, tiny holes, and you force out the fluid into a bath of sulfuric acid. And when you do that, the cellulose regenerates, and the carbon disulfide flies away. Unfortunately, where it flies away to is the breathing space of the workers in the plant, by and large, and then escapes into the environment after that. Now, talk to us about the use of carbon disulfide. Uh, You know, your book really does spend a lot of time talking about the human health impact uh, on these workers in in the manufacturing facilities and, you know, what they have gone through um, health-wise. Talk to our listeners about that. Well, it wasn't hard to miss because the main effect of very heavy levels of carbon disulfide exposure in the workplace is to make the workers insane. And I mean really insane. And we know this because the chemical before it was ever used in viscose, in rayon, was used in the rubber industry in the 19th century. One famous factory had to put bars on its second-story windows because the workers were so prone to jump out and kill themselves. They also... uh, in their, in their deranged, paranoid psychosis uh, would hurt other people at times, not just themselves. My goodness, uh, then, and I know uh, there are some other health impacts, so yeah, tell us more. Well, 
the same level of exposure would tend to make people lose their uh, sensation of their nerves. They couldn't feel their hands or legs. They had difficulty walking. Um, there's an early phase of very high-level exposure where people became uh, quite lascivious. The, the French love to describe that phase. Um, <laughs> and uh, then, after the exposure continued, they became, the men became impotent, for example, so it had a kind of double-phase response. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our own time, we've realized now that there are long-term effects as well. These, all the effects I'm describing would come on in weeks to months to the first couple of years. Uh, then it became clear in the 1930s that people were developing Parkinson's disease with heavy exposure. And in the 1960s and 70s, it became clear that people were having heart attack and stroke at much too young an age. What do you mean by much too young an age? Well, uh, what, you, what you, age are we talking about? In, in your 40s. Wow. Wow. 50s. Yeah. Now, what about the workers' families? Talk about how they are affected, um, you know, by what, what happens to the workers in these factories. Well, there are, there are really a lot of tragic reports of, of the effects on the family. First of all, people were taken off to the insane asylum back when people were hospitalized for mental illness, and you lost the breadwinner in the family. There was no recognition that it was occupationally related. People didn't get workers' compensation or in certain states in the United States, when this was happening in the 1930s, you could get some measly compensation if your arm was cut off, but for illness, there was no recognition of disease at all. And that was true for the state of Pennsylvania, where most of the rayon factories were initially located. The only way the disease could be connected to the exposure was that one of the uh, early investigations simply went to the mental hospitals and looked at records to see how many of them came from the nearby factory. So well, that's one I... way, of course, that destroys the family. And there were cases where, where violence occurred within a family because the, the husband was so crazy. Mm-hmm. Now, just as an aside, you know, I know one of the things that um, the publisher of your book, um, they've made you know, a great claim. And and it's so true. As I was reading it, you know, and looking through your resources, it is exceptionally well researched. And in order to find the information that you did about the health impacts on workers and their families and whatnot, give us just a little bit of insight as to what you had to do to put all those pieces of information together. Because that, I think, is fascinating. Well, sometimes it was it was strictly fortuitous. I was uh, trying to do some research on uh, one of the big sites, which was in Wales in the United Kingdom, uh, which was owned by uh, the largest rail manufacturer called Cortals, and wrote an email to the local historical society in this small town in Wales, and they forwarded on to a, a local industrial historian. But the reason this guy got interested in industrial history was because his father had worked at the factory. His father, who had died at a very young age of a heart attack, by the way, um, or stroke and heart attack, I don't know the details, but that was just completely fortuitous. Sometimes I um, track down people in different ways. There's a, a very large plant that was in East Germany, and a local teacher had written a history of the town, and 
when I wrote to him, he arranged for me to meet one of the former workers because the place is shut down now. And uh, they were very kind and took me around and sat down and talked to me about what it was like. And similarly, in Sweden, I met with a um, uh, an old worker. I believe it was the day of his uh, 85th birthday. So the, the former workers who were still alive were having a little birthday party for him. So that was wow. quite touching as well. Well, and that's one of the great things about your book. I mean, at the at the vortex of talking about the lethal history of Viscos Rayon, it's it's a story about people. We've got so much more to talk about with Dr. Blanc, so don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this commercial break. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. And in case you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Blanc, professor of medicine um, at the University of California, San Francisco. He has just released a brand new book that we're talking about today. It's called Fake Silk, The Lethal History of Viscose Rayon. And in the last segment, we were talking about the human health impact that a chemical that's you know, just really at the vortex of the manufacturing process for viscose called carbon disulfide, um, the human health impacts that that has. But I want to ask you, Dr. Blanc, besides the impact that it has on factory workers, what impact does carbon disulfide have on the environment around manufacturing facilities? 
Well, we don't know a lot about it. If you look in the EPA's release inventory today, you can see that some of the largest uh, point sources uh, for chemicals include carbon disulfide, not because we have any rayon fabric producing anymore in the United States, although perhaps that would change with current federal policies. I do not know. Uh, Mm -hmm. But in fact, we have uh, sponge manufacturing, cellophane manufacturing, and a very important source of manufacturing and airborne release of carbon disulfide is uh, the manufacturing of uh, viscose film for sausages and uh, hot dogs. Mm, And so all of those factories do release uh, uh, substantive amounts of carbon disulfide, but we just don't know uh, the human health effects. Actually, the only good example we have of a probable adverse effect was near the last rayon factory in the United States, which was in Axis, Alabama, and there was a famous lawsuit because uh, there was a, a nearby um, uh, family whose horses kept dying, and when in the, they were tested at necropsy, they had high levels of carbon disulfide, but they lost the suit because the laws was written in, in Alabama really only applied to nuisance effects. <laughs> which this didn't count as for some reason that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of that, you know, and when we talk about public policy, that doesn't always make sense. But let me ask you this, um, you know, consumers who are listening to the show and they're hearing about this dangerous chemical that's a part of the manufacturer, uh, manufacturing process of products they may have in their home, uh, you know, cellophane or, or rayon fabrics, are these viscose products safe for consumers to wear or to use? Absolutely, which is why, of course, so little gets done. It's really a, a kind of what-me-worry syndrome. It's very analogous to the complete lack of hazard to the consumer of that cheap T-shirt you bought uh, at the warehouse store for $12 rather than its true cost of $20, and some uh, unfortunate in the 15th floor walk-up death trap in Bangladesh made it. Right. And and you, you open your book in your introduction, you talk about, um, you know, if you're at a cocktail party or a, you know, a social gathering and people ask you about, you know, your book and, and you, know, you have this conversation and they are aghast and they say, well, you know, is it safe for me? And when you say, yes, it's safe for you, well, that's kind of when their interest wanes. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I wasn't exactly the life of the party to start with either on this topic. <laughs> you know, you, you don't stand around talking about uh, workers who go crazy and get people, you know, excited. Yeah, I can only imagine. You know, your book names names. Um, and I would like for you to tell us which companies own manufacturing plants that use carbon disulfide. And, you know, it, it begs the question, doesn't OSHA or the EPA regulate them or the similar uh, linear counterparts of those agencies in other countries? Talk to us about the companies that are manufacturing this, this well, product. Let's start with the OSHA part of it, because that's, that's almost easier. The, the standards for things that you inhale are often uh, measured in something called parts per million, which has to do with how many 
millions of molecules are allowed in the air. And the standard uh, for carbon disulfide in the United States, uh, based on OSHA, is 20 parts per million, which is one of the highest, as to say, least protective standards in the world. It's matched by India, but even China, which is now a major producer, um, is is better than that. So, uh, it, by the way, the, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, which is the research agency for health in the workplace, has recommended one part per million, 20 times more protective. And, in fact, in the state of California, which has the power to make its own standards if they're more strict, um, has made a one part per million standard wow. for carbon disulfide. So that just shows you, uh, of course, there's two parts to it. You have to have the standard and you have to enforce it. So even though China has a better standard, I'm not sure that it's uh, it's enforced. Do we know the names of the big producers in China? By and large, we don't. Or You, know, you can find a name on the Internet and who knows what that means. Although mm-hmm. one of the major European uh, producers that's still left, which is called Lensing Fibers, uh, does own or partially own a very large uh, production uh, facility in, in China, and I'm sure there's foreign investment and others, and um, that's probably true with, with India and Indonesia as well. In terms of um, sponges, uh, all you have to do is name the major sponge producers, and they're still producing the sponges here and abroad. That That's a diversified, so... The Americans produce their own sponges, and the Europeans their own. The, the French brand is called Spontex, which is uh, its mascot is a hedgehog. They've done a very famous television advertisement with the hedgehog having a romantic relationship with a sponge, to put it subtly. <laughs> very successful. And, uh, so European. I, I should say very French advertisement. <laughs> I can only imagine. I can only yeah. imagine. Well, let me ask you this, Dr. Blanc. You know, you've mentioned that uh, viscose has been around since the turn of the last century. How long exactly has carbon disulfide been used in manufacturing? And, and how long have we known how toxic it is to the people who are working with it? Well, it's certainly in the rubber industry dates back to the... Uh, 1850s, and in fact, there wasn't much of a gap between its first introduction and the initial medical uh, observation and documentation of its hazards, bearing in mind that some of the more subtle effects required modern epidemiology to uh, unearth, but but these blatant effects were noted very early on. Um, So we have even Though we have uh, more than 100 years of viscous, we actually have more than 150 years of carbon disulfide experience. So knowing all of that, and, and you know, we, we have all kinds of regulatory bodies, not just in the United States, but in other countries. Why has this toxic chemical been allowed to continue in an occupational, you know, use even though it's known to be dangerous. Talk to us about the political machinations that surrounding this issue and how this has been continuously allowed. Well, I I think there's nothing special about carbon disulfide in that regard, even though 
some of the history is particularly egregious. In, in fact, there's a disequilibrium of, of costs and a disequilibrium of power in terms of who's exposed and who, who runs the show. So I, I don't think that's particularly uh, surprising. But I do think it's important in the case of carbon disulfide and, and viscose because it's a cautionary tale that isn't, in fact, so special to that single product, and, and the lessons learned apply to other things as well. What would it take, public policy-wise, to protect workers? Or, I mean, is there any way to protect, you know, workers from this exposure in terms of, uh, you know, you mentioned that California has put in regulations of one part per million, um, and that probably means we don't have any plants you know, producing this in California. <laughs> we don't, but actually there's a, uh, there are some other ways to get exposed to carbon disulfide, and one of them is through the breakdown product of a very popular agricultural pesticide uh, that one of its byproducts is, is, in fact, carbon disulfide. So there have been exposures uh, to people here. Uh, one of the better documented was a case that occurred out elsewhere where, where this material was... was uh, poured down a, uh, a sewer and people were exposed. Another source of exposure I should also add is through pharmaceuticals. There's a very well-known and well-established um, drug that's used in alcohol aversion therapy because if you're on this medicine and then you drink despite that, you get violently ill. Mm. Uh, it's, it's called Anabuse or Disulfiram is the generic and that medication is actually metabolized in the human body to carbon disulfide. You can prove that somebody's taking the medicine if you want by measuring how much carbon disulfide they exhale in their breath. So there are other ways of being exposed. But in terms of safe manufacturing, in fact, truly safe manufacturing is also cost-effective and environmentally protective because you enclose the system to such an extent that you uh, recapture the carbon disulfide. When, uh, when this step occurs of the uh, spraying out under the, the, the cover of, carb, of um, a sulfuric acid. So um, you can certainly make it much safer, and you can monitor workers. We, we know now how to actually measure in urine or in blood the breakdown products of carbon disulfide so you can find out if somebody's being exposed even when you can't measure it in the air effectively. Let me ask you this. You know, in your research, did you find any instances in which, um, you know, the manufacturing plants who are working with this chemical, uh, you know, that it's part of the employee handbook or something to let them know that this is something they're going to be exposed to and the health risks they should be looking for? I mean, is there anything preemptive going on? Well... Uh, if you're in a facility where the workers are organized in some fashion, it's 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 likely that they know that this is a hazard. And when you look at the history, of course, a lot of the workers in the more modern era have been aware and have uh, worked with their 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 safety committees on this. When you look back a bit farther. Mm-hmm. People generally did not have any idea. Uh, and if you look at specific examples 
such as during World War II, and this was a strategic material for both the Allies and the Axis. Um, most most workers had no idea, and uh, under under the Nazi regime, even if they had an idea, they were either concentration camp inmates or slave laborers by and large, and so they couldn't do anything about it anyway. Wow. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Dr. Blanc, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. You know, if you listen to Go Green Radio on a regular basis, you probably know that it's just a sliver of what I do. This is actually just part of a much larger organization called the Go Green Initiative, and it's an environmental education program. I started back in 2002. We work with schools to help them conserve natural resources for future generations and protect children's health from environmental pollutants. And if you want to know it 
more information about that organization, you can go to gogreeninitiative.org. Check us out. Get involved. Um, It's free to schools, and uh, we love what we do. And a lot of you I know are college students who listen to us on uh, voiceamerica.com, and we're glad that you're joining us as well. In case you've just tuned in, our guest today is Dr. Paul Blanc, and he is the author of a brand new book called Fake Silk, The Lethal History of Viscose Rayon. And we've been talking about the human health impacts of one of the key chemicals involved in the manufacturing process of viscose. And we've been talking about some of the environmental impacts as well. You know, it's it's hard to understand sometimes, you know, how uh, materials and manufacturing processes that are known to be toxic and harmful are allowed to go on. But sometimes it's all about economics. So, Dr. Block, I'd really like for you to spend some time talking to us about the global economics of viscose and, and why it's such a lucrative business. Well, I want to start off by saying that this was the prototype of all multinational corporations. This really was the, the first industry that was truly multinational from its start. And this dates even before the First World War, where they got in trouble for setting up a cartel, really. And in the United States, where there were just two manufacturers of note. One was the American Viscose Company, which was wholly owned by the British, by Cortols, and the other was DuPont. And they actually were defined as a duopoly instead of a monopoly. Um, and, in fact, just to get you a sense of how big a business it was, because the American Viscose Company was a wholly owned, non-public British subsidiary, the uh, quid pro quo for the American Congress passing Lend-Lease for the British in World War II was the public offering of the American Viscose Company before they would even you know, sign that bill. So that just gives you a sense of, uh, and and the cellophane business, which was really the cash cow for DuPont, uh, was also huge. Looking in our own time, there's still uh, money to be made uh, in the fibers. I would say that the big money is in um, rayon that you cut up into little pieces and then mix with other synthetics or other naturals. So that's why when you Look on the rack, you see of you know twenty percent viscose or thirty percent viscose, because mm-hmm. it's it's this process called rayon staple where the f- long fibers are pulled and then chopped into little pieces. Unfortunately, in the nineteen thirties and forties, that led to even higher worker exposure because of the process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the cellophane business, uh, you know, cellophane is kind of a niche market now, but the largest factory in the world uh, supposedly is, is in the United States, in Kansas, and that's owned by the British now. It was conglomerated also. Wow. Now, I have to ask, because there's a point to everything. You spent a lot of time creating this book. You researched it so thoroughly. Um, and now it's out, and people can get a hold of it. When you were going through all the painstaking work to create this this book, what were you hoping that consumers would do with the information once they got your book in their hands? You know, I've never been that driven by models of public protection that require 
consumers to act individually. I don't think as a consumer of water I need to send my water out for testing to make sure it's not full of cholera bacillus. So I didn't think about it from the consumer point of view. I I do think that there's some interesting models of what consumers are doing uh, through group efforts with secondary apparel manufacturing and demanding that the large um, middlemen require that the working conditions in Bangladesh and in similar places are are not as hazardous as they are now. So that is a consumer-based model. But I think the real protection needs to come at a more societal level, and we're really dependent on our regulatory agencies to do something. So part of what I was thinking about is to get the word out there and put pressure on the regulatory apparatus to to do something. I have to say I'm not very optimistic that OSHA is going to be making any more stringent levels for anything anytime soon in mm-hmm. our current climate. Mm-hmm. I think I had another personal motivation, which was just to do justice to the memory of the people who toiled and gave up their health and sometimes gave up their lives because of this. Mm-hmm. And that leads me to my next question, because I think what's so powerful about your book is the human story behind this toxic process and, and the chemicals involved. And I'd really love to spend some time um, letting you describe some of the places that you visited and some of the people that you spoke with as you researched the book. You alluded to it in an earlier segment, but let's spend some time with that because really the human interest part of this book, the, the science is fascinating and the research is fascinating, but what really made it a page turner for me was reading about the people. So spend some time talking to us about that. Well, one example might be the the chance I had, and I felt very honored to sit down and speak with a, uh, an older woman who now lives in assisted living in London, who was a concentration camp survivor and as part of that experience was sent to a satellite concentration camp in Austria whose sole purpose was to supply workers, all of them were women, for the big rayon-producing factory there. And just uh, having a chance to meet her personally and talk for not that very long. I've read what she'd written, too. She'd actually written a children's book about her experiences. And, of course, she didn't know what she was working with at the time. And um, so I wasn't really looking for uh, her, you know, technical description, but just the personal. I actually visited that plant as well, uh, and they were very forthcoming. They've been um, very open about their their terrible record during the war, and they've even uh, paid to have a book written by a historian detailing it. But um, they arranged for me to be taken around the, the factory that's currently a very clean factory with the right kind of controls that you should have. So it's a a model in that way. But they have this older worker who's, I guess, not in shape to be a factory line worker anymore. And so he's the guy that takes people around. He takes me up this tower that they have there. I don't know why all these rayon factories seem to have these these towers um, for storing stuff. I don't exactly know why. But 
we go up to this tower because it has a good view of the factory grounds, and he, he's showing me we're on the fifth floor or whatever, and he says very proudly, you know, we haven't had a suicide from here since the 1950s. <laughs> and then he paused and he said, of course, during the war we had a lot more. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And, and, and you know, tell me what these workers, like when they were sitting there and they were working in the factories, were they just breathing in fumes? I mean, did it burn? What did they experience exactly as this carbon disulfide was entering their bodies? Well, it's interesting that one of the big problems with carbon disulfide-based manufacturing has been uh, eye effects, which can be two kinds. One is you really can have a toxic damage to the optic nerve. But there's another kind of irritant effect, which isn't carbon disulfide directly. It's the interaction of carbon disulfide with the um, sulfuric acid bath. And that's one of the things that the workers would experience most blatantly if things weren't going so well. So in the factory in Sweden, for example, there was somebody who would stand at the door of the factory and look and check how red workers' eyes were. And if they were too red, they would just send them home, which is not a great strategy. No. The factory in, um, I believe it was the factory in, well, it was one of the southern U.S. factories once they started to move down there. They, you know, people would see people being walked home at the end of the day because they were, their vision was so impaired they, they couldn't walk by themselves and had to be oh. escorted. So, so that was a, another uh, blatant uh, effect, certainly. Wow. Now, There's a very a, moving um, memoir, too, of a French uh, slave laborer who describes her eye problems in great detail. And those were similar she, to what you just described? Yeah, or? she was nearly blind, but, but uh, luckily survived. As a medical doctor, what bothers you the most about the illnesses brought about by this manufacturing of viscose? What what bothers me? Yeah. I mean, if I was if I had a patient, of course, you'd be um, bothered by the fact that you'd probably run into a lot of interference if you tried to claim that this was caused by the work because some of the effects, of course, could be caused by other things. A heart attack or stroke has other other uh, contributors as well. And in fact, the British have never recognized that a heart attack could be due, officially recognized that a heart attack could be due to carbon disulfide despite the fact that the original epidemiology was done in Britain, well, in Wales, by, by one of the leading epidemiologists in the, the history of heart disease in, in Britain. So um, that's probably what would, what would bother me the most would be the unfairness of the whole thing. And the fact mm-hmm. that for most of this, there's nothing you can do to make it better except for stopping continued exposure. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is just mind-blowing. Thank you so much, Dr. Blanc. We're going to come back uh, after a quick commercial break with more. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. In case you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Paul Blanc. And we're talking about his brand new book called Fake Silk, The Lethal History of Viscose Rayon. And uh, this book just came out. It's published by Yale University Press. And you can you can find it just by Googling it. But you can also go to YaleBooks.com to pick up Fake Silk. It's, it's really a very accessible book. I mean, my undergraduate degree is in English, and and though I'm not a scientist, um, I found this book incredibly accessible and a very worthwhile read, so I really encourage all of our listeners to check it out. Dr. Blanc, um, the final chapter of your book enumerates uses for carbon disulfide other than the manufacturing of viscose, and we've talked about some of those uses. Um, Were there any other applications of carbon disulfide that you wanted to mention, um, particularly in respect to their impact on human and even animal health, as well as the environment? Well, in terms of its impact on animal health, it was the preferred way to kill gophers for decades. <laughs> uh, so people would just buy cans of this stuff and and uh, pour it down gopher holes. And there was a very um, illustrative case, really, at the turn of the last century in California, uh, where two brothers uh, were overexposed because they had a 20-gallon can of this stuff, and there was a hole in it, and they didn't realize, and it was where they slept. And so one of them uh, uh, murdered someone out of paranoia and then uh, killed himself, and the other one, the other brother just went went crazy. The, The irony is that the manufacturer of that marketer of the carbon disulfide, I actually don't know where they got it from, but the marketer of it was a company based in Los Angeles. And the I guess they did manufacture it there, come to think of it, because the the 
owner of the business um, shot somebody from the Chamber of Commerce in, in Los oh. Angeles, and there was a trial, and he got acquitted because he claimed that he went crazy from exposure to carbon disulfide. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. So you, you can't invent this stuff. It's just too crazy. I know. It's, it's almost like, you know, the stuff of a, of a fiction novel, but this is right. real life. Right. And then this, this chemical that I mentioned a little bit earlier, which I didn't say the name, it's called metamsodium. It's one of the most widely used soil fumigants, and it has toxicity by other means, but it's also, it also breaks down in the environment to carbon disulfide. Wow. You know, Dr. Blanc, I, I'm hoping, as I read your book, I was hoping that you're not the lone ranger on this issue. I, I'm hoping that there are other groups or or individuals carrying the torch on this issue because it seems like it would be so appropriate for labor unions or, or the environmental justice movement to take on, uh, you know, this issue. What's going on uh, besides your book? Well, no, I'm, I, I wouldn't claim to be alone. I think there are people who are definitely aware of this, certainly in the occupational health community. The fact that there, there are no rayon fiber producers in America doesn't mean that there aren't carbon disulfide users in viscose, as I've mentioned. Um, so I, people, people are aware, but I, I wouldn't mind if some regulator at the EPA picked up the book and then said, hmm. Let me go back to the toxic release inventory and see what we're really doing about these places. Mm-hmm. And, and how often does that happen, that somebody at the EPA, without outside pressure, without you know, public policy makers asking for it, that they actually um, have the ability or the gumption to, to take on an action like that? How, how typical would well, it, an instance it, it, like it, that be? People, yeah, I mean, these people at the EPA, they're my colleagues, they... They went into it, the, not the you know, civil servants, but the scientists went into the field because they care about the environment. So it's not, not a lucrative line of work either, I can tell you. <laughs> so they can make a lot more as a you know, chemist for Monsanto than uh, the EPA. So it's not, it's not because they uh, don't care. Well, and and I stipulate that, and their their salaries are probably along the lines of somebody like me in the nonprofit world. It's not lucrative, but uh, you know, it's a labor of love, and so I I totally get that. Um, as I've mentioned, your book is just superbly well researched, and it's clear that you went above and beyond um, the efforts of of a lot of authors in order to present your case. Um, what motivated you to write this book? What was the genesis or that aha moment that that caused you to want to put pen to paper on this and, and do such a remarkable job of creating a fully comprehensive examination of this issue? Well, you you mentioned my previous book, uh, which is called How Everyday Products Make People Sick. And in that book, mm-hmm. there's a small section that has to do with carbon disulfide, particularly carbon disulfide in the... Uh, early rubber industry, and then I, I kind of uh, did the the round story very briefly, and I realized this. I even as I worked on that, that the story was so much bigger um, than that. And then the motivation, as I got into it, it was um, uh, reinforcing because everything I would look at would lead me on to somewhere else, uh, and everything seemed to be connected 
to everything. So to me, it was just a self-sustaining um, process, really. How long did it take you, Dr. Blunk? Eight years, I guess. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's quite a commitment. Now, I'd like to ask you the question that you wrote yourself in the introduction of your book. You, you put it this way. When a new technology leads to disease or even death, how high does the body count have to be before any protective steps are taken? And I pose that question to you. Well, not to be flippant, but I'd say pretty darn high uh, based on my experience. If there's some single uh, terrible event that catches public attention, something tends to be done a little bit faster. You know, if a plane were to crash because of a cell phone catching fire, um, believe me, you know, a lot would happen quickly. And if, you know, 300 people died all at once. But when it's one by one by one, it's it's hard to capture people's attention. Mm-hmm. And you in, know, in fact, ironically, our, our earliest um, um, legislation about fire protection in, in clothing mm-hmm. was not because of cotton children's sleepwear. It was because of types of rayon that were extremely flammable because they were brushed rayon or I don't actually know the technology of what it was because I haven't dug down into it and I only found out about this somewhat recently. Then the sweaters were called torch sweaters. I don't know. You know, it's, kind of, it's really a little scary, I think. It is. And those it were, is. you know, cases that were very high profile and actually led to legislation. You're a professor of medicine. What do you talk to your students about when it comes to occupational health um, and issues like this? Um, what is your advice? What is your, you know, uh, uh, guidance on these types of issues to your students? Well, the cornerstone of my advice is when you have a patient, also ask them what they do for a living. And don't just settle for a job title but actually walk through verbally with them what they do on the job. Because if you don't ask about what people do for a living, there's no possible way that you could include that in what you're considering as factors in their health or their illness. How interesting. Um, We have just a few seconds left in the show. Um, What parting thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners on this issue? Well, maybe it sounds trite, but I think knowledge is power. Absolutely. And the way that we can get that knowledge is to check out your new book. And I want to encourage our listeners to check it out. It's called Fake Silk, The Lethal History of Viscose Rayon. And I want to thank Dr. Blanc for joining us. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us as well. You know, we'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.